what is up, New Journey? I enter into the eighth year of months of saying that every single Sunday. Uh, last time I was here, two weeks ago, I spoke a little bit about the frustration of spiritual work and how it's an invisible work and how very often you don't necessarily get to see the fruit of your labor because the work that God does in our hearts is very often an invisible work. It was a gift of grace to me for Austin to send that video in and remind me. Um, when I met him, uh, he was about Braden's age. And uh, to see where he is today, it's just an incredible blessing. I'm so grateful for the many, many people that God has sent here over these eight years. I know I get to stand up on the stage and be the face of this thing. Uh, but I can promise you, if, if, if it was resting on me and on my power, uh, we would be meeting you know, in a Wendy's parking lot right now. Uh, and there wouldn't be nearly as many people here. So I'm so grateful for all the people that God has sent here over the years and the, the faithful labor that they have performed. We're celebrating eight years as a church here in this month. I've heard of people getting to have birthday weeks, right? I don't know if that's a real thing or not. My wife tells me it is, so we have to celebrate her birthday for a whole week every year. I thought that was a real thing. Now I'm not so sure after looking at your faces. Uh, so I figured, hey, why can't the church just have a birthday month, right? So we're gonna, you're going to hear a story each week uh, over these uh, five weeks here in the month of August. We're grateful to be back. Had a good time in the Smoky Mountains, but um, you're not here to hear about that. So let's jump into God's Word this morning. Open up your Bibles, your devices to Judges chapter 10, and let's talk about uh, have mercy. Now, uh, I'm going to share a little bit of a story that, that maybe some of you can connect with and some of you can't. It'll just kind of depend on your age. Um, one of the unique things that I experienced growing up was that we did not have the ability to curate a musical playlist on our phones, right? We didn't have that. Uh, if we wanted to have a song and be able to play it anytime we wanted and you were broke like we were, then you had to wait for the radio to play the song. And then at the moment that the radio played the song, you had to have your tape ready and you had to record the song from the radio. Then you could take the tape, put it in your car and listen to it anytime you wanted. Right. Anybody? OK. Hey, hey, that's awesome right there. Some of you are lying, but I appreciate it. All right. Making me feel better. Now, the, the only problem with this whole system that sounds like, man, that's an ingenious plan. We should go back to that. Right. The whole problem with this system, though, was that not only did it record the song, it recorded everything that was audibly going on in the room at the same time that the room was playing. So that meant that when you re-listened to the song, you could hear your mom yelling in the background, your brother playing over here, right? And you would think that would ruin the song, but it didn't. It just gave a little, a little nuance, a little mix, a little flair, a little home remix, if you will, to the song, right? Uh, and that's what we want to talk a little bit about today is, is remixes. It didn't ruin the song. It was just a remix. And uh, remixes, that's what they do. They either add something that was not originally part of the composition of the song or they take something away. And the remix song bears some resemblance to the original, right? But it is not exactly the same. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, a remix, Israel's remix of the same old song of idolatry. I want to push you to see this in the text. But this isn't just the same old thing we've read, it feels like, for the hundredth time in the book of Judges. There's, this is a, there's a little nuance to this. There's some flair, some, something being added to this. And so we're going to talk about the remix of this same old song of idolatry that they've been performing for a while now. We're going to talk about uh, what I will call their ridiculous request to God. And we're going to talk about how God rejects them initially, but eventually 
out of his grace, rescues them by providing them a champion who can expel their enemies. We're going to do it a little bit different today. We're going to read just a handful of verses kind of as we go, and then I'll stop and make some observations, but we'll eventually make our way all the way through uh, chapter 11, verse 3. But let's start in chapter 10, verse 6, where we read, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So let's talk really quick about this repetition of the repulsive. And let's just first note that what sin very often does is it sucks us in into what feels like a cycle, but it's actually a spiral. Note that the text opens saying that the people of Israel again... <laughs> Right, like the, the, the author knows, this isn't the first time my readers have read these words. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This line keeps repeating itself in Judges and it reminds us that there is a repetitiveness to sin. We've seen this in our own lives where we do okay for a while and then we fall back into whatever specific thing we wrestle with and struggle with is, right? We'll do it again and then we defeat it again and then we seem to fall back and do it again and then we defeat it again, right? It's sort of a never-ending cycle. This is the cycle that Christians live with every single day in their sin. Now, Israel is not really in a cycle but rather a spiral. And the reason why I call it that is I would say, okay, if they are in a cycle, really what they're doing is they're cycling the toilet bowl, right? Where with each pass around the cylinder, further and further and further down they go away from God. With each passing judge and with the passing of each judge, as each judge passes away and dies, they fall further away from God. Think of where we were, if you can remember, all the way back to Othniel in Judges chapter 3 and where we are today and where it's going to eventually go. They are descending away from God. These are a new set of verses. This is a new set of people it's a new historical time period. But this feels like the eighth remix of a song we didn't really like the first time we heard it. Right? It's like we just keep circling back to our least favorite song in a playlist. And you can almost, I think, hear the annoyance in the pen of the writer of Judges as he has to recount once again the various gods that Israel would fall in love with as a part of their rejection of God. And there is a repetitiveness to sin, right? We just seem to kind of struggle with the same thing over and over and over again. But we do need to note that just because it's repetitive, it doesn't mean it's any less repulsive. And we need to also note that just because it's repetitive and it's the same old sin, it doesn't mean we can't add new depths to our depravity, that we can't go deeper into that specific sin. If you'll look closely, what you will notice in the text is that Israel has added more gods to their idolatry. Generally speaking, Israel would struggle with the worship of one false god, just a Canaanite god called Baal. But the list that the author of Judges gives conveys that while Israel is certainly falling into idolatry again, they are not just doing the same old thing because the list of gods that they are worshiping has multiplied. They have gone from one false god to many, and God's special people have now become a syncretic people. A syncretic people. So let's talk a little bit about that word as we talk about our remix of the repetition. This is the nuance of what Israel is doing. And, and I first want to note that really what syncretism is, is people will tell you, well, it's a belief in all gods. And I call it really just a remix of atheism. 
Because ultimately what both atheism and syncretism do is they reject God. One just does it because it says he doesn't exist, atheism. Syncretism rejects God because it rejects no God at all, right? If every God is God, then no one is God, right? That's the idea. The coexist bumper stickers, for instance, are syncretic, right? You've seen those before? That's, that's syncretism. That's syncretism. Uh, they, they say, hey, just get along, guys. It's all true. But here's the problem. If they're all true, then none of them are true because none of them are compatible. Right? I saw this other picture the other day. I thought it really captured syncretism fairly well. If we can show those, pic, those other pics, Josh. It, this, this picture that I saw, and I can't see the caption on it, but it called syncretism the boy band of religion. The boy band of religion. Here's, what, here's why it said this. Have you ever noticed that boy bands are made up of stereotypical figures? Right? There's like a certain role that it, every, every boy band has. There's like the strong and silent type. Right? Then there's the baby face. There's the nerdy one. Then there's the one who actually has talent looking at you, Justin Timberlake. Right? <laughs> at least one of those guys had some real talent. Right? We never really get beyond the surface with what we know about boy bands either, do we? And they don't really invite us deeper in to sort of get to know them better. Notice that their lyrics are always just generic rhyming phrases, mostly about love. Um, a lot like a lot of Chris Tomlin songs, if you guys are a fan of his. Syncretism sees religion as being sort of like a boy band. Right? This is how syncretism sees it. Syncretism says, well, there's, when it comes to religion, there's a, there's a Zen one, there's a legalistic one, there's an apocalyptic one, a judgmental one. There's the God who's chill, right? the one who's like an old granddad. Then there's the God who's angry and scary. Right? This is how syncretism sees religion. It allows you to take... Uh, the parts that you like of every religion and it never really forces you to see beyond the surface of just how incompatible they all are. In my mission work in Africa, we had to be very, very clear as we shared the gospel that there was one true God and his name was Jesus. The people of Zimbabwe, they need and want all the help they can get to survive and they would say yes to Jesus when we would share the gospel with them because they don't want any deity upset with them. Life is hard enough as it is. They don't need any deities working against them, right? They would say yes to Jesus, but here's what they would do with him. They would say yes to Jesus, and then they would stick him on the shelf with their collection of other gods that they worship, and then they would pull Jesus out when the occasion called for it, and they needed his help. Right? It's sort of a kitchen sink approach. Underneath our kitchen sink, we keep all these various cleaners. There's drain unclogger, furniture polish, pine saw. All have a specific time and application that we pull out depending upon the job at hand. Right? This is how syncretism collects or, or sees religion. Syncretism collects gods the way a kitchen sink collects cleaners. Now, syncretism says, yes, I believe in some sort of um, generic higher power of some kind, but... We can't be sure about the specifics of God. So what syncretism does is it takes just sort of a, a blanket acceptance approach. Rather than trust in and worship one thing, what syncretism does is it hedges its bets. And it takes what it sees as the safer route and it chooses to worship everything just in case something is true versus deciding which one is actually true. Right? If religion was a roulette wheel... Syncretism would put a single chip on every number and color on the board, 
right? Hedges his bets. Well, Israel has become syncretic in our text, right? They're worshiping all these other false gods of the people around them and somehow convincing themselves that they're still worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. But you know, you don't have to be an ancient Israelite or live in Africa to have syncretic tendencies. This sin of syncretism repeats itself in America too. It just looks different here, which makes it our own American remix of it, right? Right? So syncretism, friends, is not just an ancient problem, but an American one as well. I think if the author of Judges was writing about the United States of America and the American church in particular, rather than ancient Israel, rather than, say, the God of Sidon and the Syria, I think, I think what, it, what he would have written would have been the God of science. Right? And they worship the God of science. And they worship the God of materialism. And they worshiped the God of tolerance and acceptance because the great gospel of the United States of America is now a gospel of inclusion and the only unforgivable sin is not to accept everybody and fail to be inclusive. Syncretism merges all the gods into one and we do this. We do this here in America. We turn cartwheels around all the things, the precepts of the word of God so that we can accommodate and merge our love of self and stuff and acceptance into a version of Christianity that is not how um, God defines the word, Christianity, in his word. It doesn't look anything like biblical Christianity. I, I find this interesting. Uh, there's a phrase now that's floating out there, and I think it's a really interesting one. When people want to be critical of the church's beliefs, they kind of have characterized the church into two camps. There is progressives, and then there's historic Christianity. That's what they call it. That's an insult. Historic Christianity. Well, friends, historic Christianity is just that, historic. <laughs> There's a precedent. There's a way it's always been. And Christianity 2021.0, if you will, is a merging of competing and conflicting ideas rooted in logic that can only be described as demonic. And it can only be described that way because demons are its author. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 22 through 24. That worship of anything other than Jesus is ultimately the worship of the demonic. And Paul saw demons as sort of being behind the curtain, pulling the strings of every other religion, which is why when you look at it, Christianity is so unique in the marketplace of religions and every other religion outside of Christianity bears a familial resemblance to one another because the demons are not very creative. They're clever, but they're not very creative. Why should they be? They've created a strategy that works. So why reinvent the wheel? I'll give you another dated reference. In the 80s, Coke decided that billions in profits and selling billions of cans of soda was a problem, so they decided to come out with new Coke. It was a disaster, right? Coke wasn't broke, so it didn't need to be fixed. The demon's strategy to enslave human beings to worship of something, anything other than Christ and him alone, it works. It ain't broke. So why would they fix it? It's the same strategy they've employed over the millenniums. So I would say this, ultimately syncretism is satanic because ultimately what it is worship of is not really many gods, but it's actually worship of Satan. Now you say, man, is it worship of Satan? Well, yes, I mean, it may not involve, you know, sacrificing virgins or goats or drinking blood or anything like that, but it's all the same. 
Syncretism's genius is that it allows people to blend unchristian and non-Christian beliefs and ideals together with elements of true Christianity and let them proclaim and believe that they are Christians when they are not. These people, and I mean this as graciously and lovingly as I can say, they are headed for hell for what they worshipped began. That's their end, is to wind up in hell where what they believed began and was hatched. I've been in Haiti, and I've seen the Catholic Church merge with voodoo to celebrate cultural festivals. I'm watching things of this nature begin to take place in the United States of America, and somehow we convince ourselves that we're better than the uncivilized world. It just looks different here, friends. It's a remix, but it's the same song that's been playing itself out since time began. You know what, Israel, I just sort of assume in here, but I, I, I think just based on what we're going to read here in just a few minutes about kind of the way they approach God is I, I have to believe that there was sort of a what's the big deal attitude. Come on, man, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if somebody wants to believe this? What's the big deal if somebody wants to believe that? That's the probably the most common objection really raised to Christians when we oppose this supposedly progressive, sophisticated redefining of morals and pronouns and all the things that have been the bedrock of our society for thousands of years. What's the big deal, man? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that the actual only big deal of the universe says that it's evil. That's the big deal. That's where it starts. Notice that in the text, Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel clearly didn't see any problem with this or they wouldn't have been doing it in the first place. <laughs> but the problem was it didn't matter what they thought about what they were doing. All that mattered is what God thought about what they were doing and it was evil in the sight of the Lord. Most of our struggle in sort of the modern American westernized Christianity is we're always trying to find a way to redefine what God says is right and wrong for ourselves especially in the area of sexual ethics. But friends, I just the big deal is, I would just ask this question, where does it all end? So often, that's the worst argument I hear to try and convince me of anything is always, come on, pastor, it's 2021. Great, you can read a calendar. <laughs> what kind of argument is that? Right, if that's the basis of your entire philosophy of life, friends, you are in trouble. I love you. I say that out of love. Right? What's the big deal, man? Well, the big deal is, yeah, you think, well, this, maybe this one little step isn't a big deal, but where does it end? Where does this go three steps from now? Think. Stop Googling everything and think. Where does it all end? I'll tell you where it ends. It ends in hell where it began. Friends, if we give an inch in our battle with sin or syncretism or society we lose a mile if we give up the holy ground we give up the high ground in our fight with satanic ideologies and we lose the ability to honor God with our lives and to hopefully by the grace of God halt the spiral our friends our family our neighbors are potentially being sucked to if they go along just to get along with the wicked ways of this world where does it all stop 
Think about Israel. They started out with one false god. And by the time we get to Judges chapter 10, verse 6, they're worshiping so many false gods they could fill out a baseball lineup card with them. Where does it stop? Where does it stop? The psalmist notes in Psalm 16, 4, Josh, if you would put that on the screen. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Right? Israel started out with one problem, and now they've got nine or ten or twenty or thirty. This is what happens to the person who steps out onto the slippery slope of what I call the what's the big deal ethos. Ethos being sort of the the purpose of your life. What's the big deal? Step out onto that slippery slope and your problems only multiply. I hear this all the time. Pastor, we got to engage this, this culture and we do, we must. That's why we started a church like New Journey eight years ago. I am all in on that. But engage doesn't mean compromise. Contextualize the gospel but never compromise it. And if you do, Trying to keep up with the ever-changing times and boundary pushing of our culture is like trying to ride a bull across Canada, right? Trying to ride a wild bucking bull across Canada. Every time you think you've got everything settled down and the bull figured out, it just bucks again. Every time we give an inch and they sort of redefine the boundary, that's not good enough. They're going to push it again. You cannot live at peace with this world and be a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, the big deal is that the big deal, the big deal, says some things are evil and some are excellent. We find in verses 7 through 10 him, his response really to all of this. In verse 7 it reads, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress." So this is God's response to all of this, what I would call characterized as rejecting ridiculous religion. That's sort of how I would characterize God's response. He rejects ridiculous religion. God's anger is kindled because he is, as he described himself multiple times in the book of Exodus, a jealous God. And by the way, we want God to be a jealous God. Consider the alternative, a weak-willed God who's so desperate to be with us, he doesn't care what we do as long as we'll pretend like we love him. Right? That's not a God worthy of worship. That's a God who worships us. Right? Israel still saw themselves as God's chosen people in the text. No, they go to God and say, God, we need your help. 
need you to get us out of this jam. They still see themselves as God's chosen people, that they have the honor of this sort of ability to go to God and ask for this sort of request. Well, friends, I would argue that America probably still sees itself as a Christian nation, whatever that even means. Whatever that even means. Israel cried out to God and even feigned worship of him, but it was worship as they defined it. They're, they're not done worshiping God. They're just worshiping all these other things along with him. They're defining worship of him for themselves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He didn't accept their worship. He didn't accept it because it was only about getting out of the mess they were in. It was not about making much of God and less of themselves. Man-made religion and self-defined worship will always inevitably place the individual human as the object of worship and everything and everyone else in creation orbits around them and exists to assist them and to actualize their desires. Right? This is the attitude that we see taken towards God. He's there, he exists, and he's there to help me accomplish my dreams, my desires. Well, friends, if that's the case for you, I love you, and I'm saying this to just sort of awaken you. It's cold water when you're asleep, but I'm trying to wake you up to the reality that the God you claim to worship is actually a God that you have built that worships you rather than the God of the Bible. God's response in verses 11 through 14 is to reject this request because they had rejected him over and over and over again. He recounts all he has done to get Israel out of their messes a million times, and yet they continue to turn their backs on him. And he says, let your other gods that you love to worship, let them come and, and rescue you. And he compares really in a sense what they are doing to being like um, asking your ex-husband to pay off the millions of dollars in debt that you accrued uh, gallivanting around the globe with the lover that you left him for. <laughs> right? I'm your ex. I don't pay your bills anymore. <laughs> right? You're wed to another now. Let your current spouse come to your aid. It's ridiculous, right? Well, this is, this is the reason why I, I say that their request and their religion is ridiculous. Now, it sounds like God's done with Israel, but really what he's trying to do is simply show them by their own actions. He's trying to show them by their own actions, by the fact that when they got in trouble, who did they run to? To him. He's trying to show them by, that by their own actions, he is real and true and the only, and everything else is fake, false, and a farce. And I think this is important to say that our propensity to always cry out to the God of the Bible in times of trouble proves that we know deep down alone, he alone really is God. Right? Israel's coming to him as an admission that they know the gods of these other nations, all these other things that they trust in and that they live for are inadequate and not real. And, and I think this is just sort of good in a practical sense. I think you'll see this is true, that when we get in trouble, who we run towards in those moments demonstrates who we believe really loves us, cares about us, is for us, and powerful enough to do something about our situation. Who do you run to when you're in trouble? Who do you run to when you hit the bottom? In Luke chapter 15, in the confession and assurance time, Chris read this with us. When the prodigal son hit rock bottom, he, uh, the text says he came to himself. And he says, what am I doing here? When I have a father at home who I know loves me 
and is for me and will take care of me. Out of all the people in the world, when he hit the bottom, he knew his father loved him unconditionally and could help him even in the condition he was in at that moment. Listen, when, when Israel and when we hit rock bottom, what is usually the first thing we do? When Israel and when we hit rock bottom, what's the, usually the first thing we do? We hit our knees and go to God for help. Finally, <laughs> finally, we're broken enough to come to him for help. You ever notice this, that even people who don't believe in God cry out to him in moments of deep tragedy and when it hits the fan in life? Think about 9-11. Some of you don't remember that. 9-11, remember that? I mean, the, it, it, the, the churches were packed. Nobody was fighting against prayer that weekend. It proves that we know that he is real, that he is God, that he alone is for us. He's the only one who can really do anything about the situation we are in and the sorry state of our hearts. But you need to hear this. While all those things are very true about him, he is real, he is only, he is the only one who can do anything about our condition. God is no lucky rabbit's foot. He's not a four-leaf clover. He is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that we can pull out when it's convenient for us. He will not be used and his grace cannot be presumed upon. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you experience the new birth. We talk a lot about that, the new birth. But we also experience in the new birth a simultaneous death. Right? If you don't know Greek philosophy, Plato believed that there was a limited amount of matter in the world and that no person could be born until someone died. There was an equilibrium. Well, Plato was wrong ultimately, but his premise wasn't completely crazy because it describes well what happens in, in, in conversion. Right? You can be born again, but first the old you must die. Right? To be born again means to be born dead to sin. Or excuse me, to be born again means to be dead to sin. And how can somebody, this is a great question, how can somebody who's dead to sin keep living like they're alive to it? If you're dead to something, how could you keep living like you're alive to it? Well, Paul answers that question repeatedly in Romans chapter 6, the first 11 verses. Read these with me. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Great question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So you, you, you have been buried with Christ. You, were, you, have been, you have been made dead with Christ. You were on the cross with him. Somehow in the mystery of the gospel, you were on the cross with him when he hung there. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So not only have, were we there on the cross, not only have we been buried, but just like he was raised in new life and walked out of the grave in new creation to never die again, so have we. Right? That's Paul's point. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We don't have to say yes anymore. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, 
being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Same for us. One with Christ. We've died to sin and the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God to the glory of God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says it repeatedly over and over and over again in those first 11 verses. We are dead to sin, alive to God if we are in Christ. But what does it mean to be dead to sin? Right? What does it mean to be dead to sin? It's a question worth exploring. Well, it doesn't mean that we never sin again. It doesn't mean that. Praise God. Right? Not that I'm glad I'm sinning, but I'm glad that's not what it means. Because if it was, that would mean I was not dead to sin, right? Right? That's not what it means. It means that we are dead to the way of life of a sinner. Where we just do whatever the flesh wants with no regard for Christ. We're never grieved by our sin. We're never convicted. We can give a hoot whether or not it honors Christ or our bodies. We just do whatever we feel like doing. We are dead to that now. Listen, what do haters do? Come on, what do haters do? What do sinners do? What do Christians do? They sin and then they repent. And God is pleased to accept it. Christians still sin. Sinners just sin. Christians still sin, but then we repent and God receives it. Right? That's the difference. Well, God rejects the repentance of Israel. And he rejects the repentance of anyone when it's fake and phony and it's just an attempt to manipulate him into getting out of a jam. But praise God, he receives it when it's real and when it comes from a broken, contrite heart that is grieved over bringing dishonor to Jesus. Now, Israel does something really interesting in the text in verses 15 and 16. They place their fate in the hands of God who just rejected them. That's interesting. So let's read that. Let's read really verses 15, 16, maybe on down through the rest of chapter 10. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So, let's get into some next steps, some things to think about. First, let's note that from Israel's reaction, we can glean that sinners are better off in the hands of God than trusting their faith to anyone or anything else. Right? This is so fascinating. Israel entrusts themselves to God. Now, most of the time when, when you say, hey, I'm just going to let the process play itself out, it's because you believe you're in the right. In this particular case, Israel does not entrust themselves to God because they think they have done what is right, but they trust that whatever God chooses to do with them, it will be right. <laughs> They're better off as sinners in the hands of God than they would be to trust their fate to the hands of the wooden and stone idols that they have been worshiping. They agree with God. Notice that. You're right. We have been doing this. They agree with God and they throw themselves at the foot of the throne of God and ask God to have mercy. And friends, at some point, that's all sinners can do. Is throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and ask and beg God to have mercy. 
We must confess our sin. And all it means to confess your sin is to agree with God about it. We must come to terms with who we are and what we have done. And we must agree with God that he is right when he says that we have not done right. And all we can do is throw ourselves upon his grace and mercy and ask him to shower it upon us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. And then we just simply have to trust that he will do what is right. We read that Israel has a problem in the Ammonites who are ready to destroy them in verse 17. And notice in the text that you know, they're going to God was well, really their admission that they can't fix this problem. The Ammonites are bigger and badder than they are, right? We've all had that moment, right? Where all of a sudden, for whatever reason, life just goes sideways and we have that moment where we realize, I can't do anything about this. I can't do anything about my own heart. I certainly can't change the hearts of others. This is bigger than me. This is beyond me. Israel has this moment of clarity with the Ammonites. And here's what they could have continued to do. Here's what we can continue to do. We can try and win our battle with our sin, or we can do what Israel does at the end of this text in verse 18 and admit we need somebody bigger and badder and beyond us to come and fight for us as our champion. Israel could have kept doing the same thing. You can keep doing the same thing. But what's the definition of insanity? Keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Hmm. Well, friends, here's what I would tell you. If you want to be rid of sin, and I'm sorry about the phrasing there. The sentence is garbly gook. So if you want to be rid of sin, we don't need to just clean ourselves up, but we need Jesus to fill us up. We need for God to do that for us. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but often the longer our struggle with sin lingers, the deeper we go into it. Have you ever noticed that? Like the longer we kind of like dabble in it, we just seem to go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. I was talking about this with a friend and he was talking about being in a, like an addiction sort of recovery, sort of support group setting in his 20s. And he didn't think what he was struggling with was really that big a deal. And there were some guys in the room that were in their 50s and 60s that kind of were where he was when he was in his 20s. And then he began to hear what they were talking about that they were now into. And it was like this moment of clarity where he said, oh, that's where this goes. If something doesn't change, right? We can do this, though. We, 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 for a season, we may be able to clean ourselves up, right? Just by, by sheer will, we'll turn over a new leaf. We'll make positive changes, steer things in the right direction. But here's the problem. It never lasts. We grow weak, and when we grow weak, Satan and sin show back up. And here's what we find when they show back up. They've been working out and training, waiting for this moment. They were ready to pounce when we got weak. And they usually take us deeper into the darkness than ever before. I don't know if you've seen it, but the Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit, I think really tells this story very well. The main character is a chess prodigy. She's headed for stardom, but she also has a not-so-secret struggle with addiction. And at times, she does okay for a while. She's trying, but... The first time she ever gives in to her inner demons, as we see her kind of from childhood all the way up through adulthood, the first time she gives in to her inner demons, the spiral begins again, and each time she spirals, she spirals a little deeper to the point you can't imagine she's not reached rock bottom yet, yet as you follow her story, you begin to discover that rock bottom for her, like many of us, is a very fluid thing. <laughs> Just when we thought we couldn't go any lower, the next time we seem to go a little bit lower. Now, her example is an extreme one, but, but here's the thing. 
she had the ability. She had moments where she did really well. She had the ability. You've seen this in your life and in other people's life. She had the ability to, for seasons of time, be able to clean herself up. But her problem was not that she couldn't clean herself up. Her problem was that she never had Jesus Christ to fill herself up. See, this is the issue. The principle of the story is that if when, when we deal with our sin, right, we can't just sort of be content to get rid of the problem. We've got to fill our hearts with something richer, deeper, more powerful than our sin, greater than our sin, because sin will come back knocking, and when it does, it will be bigger and badder than it was the last time. Right? Luke chapter 11, Jesus told this story, which I think just depicts this situation well. Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says. I will return to my house from which I came. So you gave sin the boot, it searched around, gave you a little bit of time, said, okay, I think enough time has passed, and it comes back wanting to see, is there maybe a way for me to wiggle my way back in there? Right? Verse 25, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. It was a bad roommate that left the house a wreck. You've cleaned your life up. You swept things up, organized. You bought some totes. Everything looks nice. Who wouldn't want to live there? Sin says, oh, man, this looks nice. But I want to make sure I get in there. So here's what it does. Verse 26, then it goes and brings seven other spirits. More evil than itself. I'm taking no chances. I'm getting in there. And they enter and dwell there. And notice what Jesus says in the last state of that person is worse than the first. Deeper, deeper, deeper. The individual in Jesus' example is able to expel the demonic influences from their life for a little while. They clean the mess they made up of their life, but they don't feel the emptiness left by the departure of their sin with something more powerful than their sin. You see, we don't need just to be emptied of the presence of sin. We need to be filled with the presence of the Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is our God-given private security force and attack dog that's ready to do damage when sin comes knocking on the door of our hearts again. You can boot out all the bad roommates, but if you don't hire a new landlord, they'll just come back. And if you don't fill all the rooms with the fruits of the Spirit, with the power of the Spirit of God, they'll just come back. We can't defeat our sin or overcome temptation on our own. Just as Israel asked, who will fight for us as our champion? We need a champion to come in and fight for us. Because, friends, I'm going to say it one more time. We can clean ourselves up, but we can't fill ourselves up. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Christianity is not self-help. It's not get right. It's not turn over a new leaf. It's turn yourself over to the champion, Jesus Christ. The writer of Judges tells us that out of sheer grace, God provided provides a rejected champion to fight for his people. This is what the writer of Judges tells us in verse 16. He says, God grew weary of their misery. <laughs> I love that. It, it wasn't their pretense. Man, it looks like, oh, man, he rejected them at first, but then they went and they put away their false gods and they did all this, and so God responded. No, he just grew weary of their misery. This is just grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. He loves them too much to let them suffer endlessly. Now, 
at the end of chapter 10, we're not sure what is God exactly going to do, but we know he's going to do something. We got into chapter 11. We won't read those verses today, but you can read them at home this week. And we're going to read those next week and, as we look at Jephthah. But God provides them a champion. They ask that question at the end of the text. Who will be our champion? Who will go and fight for us? And Jephthah is the champion that God provides for Israel in chapter 11. Well, God has provided us a champion in Jesus. And there are incredible parallels. I'll just note some of them between Jephthah and Jesus. Jephthah was the son of a woman with loose sexual morals. It was assumed Jesus, his mom, had gotten pregnant by being impure in her sexual immorals. Jephthah was driven away by his brothers. Jesus' his brothers tried to commit him to a lunatic asylum. Jephthah was forced to move into the desert. When his brothers drove him away, he was forced to move into the desert and live out there with a group of scruffy, rough-around-the-edges type of dudes that he led. Jesus wandered the desert with a group of ragtag disciples, none of them from noble backgrounds. Jephthah was the champion God provided, who was of illegitimate birth, hated by his brothers and countrymen who led a group of scoundrels around the desert. Jesus is heaven's champion, who was considered to be of illegitimate birth, who was hated and despised by his brothers and countrymen, and who led a group of knuckleheads called the disciples around the desert. Friends, Jesus is our champion, but more importantly, he is heaven's champion. The Olympics are going on. I know you've watched at least 10 minutes of it filling up the stat sheet for the Nielsen ratings, right? And in the Olympics, each country sends its champion to measure themselves against the champions from around the world to see who is superior. Jesus is heaven's champion. And he has won the gold medal. He fought to the death and through his death, he has broken the back of sin and Satan and death and overcome it all and he offers to share that victory, that gold medal with, any, with anyone who will just simply come and ask him to. Now you have two choices in these moments. You can keep fighting a fight that you can't win. Ain't you tired of that? Look at me. You, you've heard a baby cry before. Look at me. Aren't you tired? Christian, not Christian, aren't you tired of the fight? Fighting a fight you can't win? pushing the ball up the hill just to find that when you get to the top of the hill, it just rolls down the other side and you have to push it back up again. Aren't you tired of trying harder? You can keep trying to fight the fight that you can't win. You can put your own twist on the fight, maybe try a different strategy, but you're just remixing the same old sorry song. Or you can trust heaven's champion. You can surrender to heaven's champion. And if you will, friends, he will receive you. He'll call you friend, brother, sister, child, disciple, eternal companion. I know which choice I would make. I know which choice in the deep marrow of my soul I'm hoping you make. And if you want to talk more about that, please come and see me as our band leads us in a time of response. Father, in the name of Jesus, in these moments... We ask that your spirit work, convict, lead God, and that your people would be obedient as you do. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys respond as Braden leads us. Braden, I'll turn this time over to you. I'll be in the back of the room. Whatever the spirit's leading you to do, we always just ask the very simple thing. Just do it. Just do it whether it's to come up here, stay at your seat, come to the back, whatever it is the Spirit's leading you to do, we simply beg you and ask you, please be obedient to the Spirit.
tomorrow is not promised, 10 seconds from now is not promised. Respond and respond now.